Down by the sea, yeah, yeah. On a blanket with my baby, that's where I'll be. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Adventures in Angular. Does your team need to master AngularJS? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to ours, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directly. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Wichmo 5. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel, we have Lucas Rubelke. Hello. John Papa. Hey. Ward Bell. Hey, hey, hey. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and uh, this week we're going to talk about promises in Angular. I'm uh, really upset that Ward just triple hayed my hay. I'm going to quadruple it. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> he, he just resolved that promise like four times or something. Exactly. And I, I, I'm, I, now, now, the thing you got to know about promises is that they're meant to be broken. I reject that insinuation, and I defer to you, Charles. Oh, <laughs> oh use a pun, go to prison, John. <laughs> <laughs> we are such geeks. Uh, I so, know, right? Here's the, here's the deal, guys, right? Promises. We all use them. And you're an angler. You can't escape them, right? You may want to try to run and hide, but you cannot. So, and it's not just Angular, it's, it's basically once you get to that it disconnected asynchronous world, you're either in callbacks or promises or something similar. But a lot of folks that get into Angular don't have that experience, right? Maybe you haven't gone down that road. So I think it would be interesting to talk about how do you get into that world of promises and deal with it? How do you deal with uh, making sure you understand the difference between callbacks and promises? And then also, how do you deal with uh, the common pitfalls that uh, definitely ensue? It's not a perfect world, all right? So let's uh, let's start at the beginning. What's a promise? So a promise is when you're inside of Angular, because we're talking an Angular show, you want to go do something that's asynchronous, but you don't want to have some kind of a blocking action. For example, you might want to go back to a web API and say, go get me some data. I want to get that data, but I don't know how long it's going to take, but I don't want to block the UI and say, hey, sorry, Mr. User, you're not going to be able to do anything. So what a promise does is it says, okay, go get the data. I'll give you an IOU and say, I promise to return and let you know when the data is here. 
In the meantime, carry on, my wayward son, and do it your thing. And then when the promise comes back and says, I've got your data now, it'll actually notify you and cash in that IOU and say, here's your data. And uh, it'll, you know, do your data binding, do your thing, and show it on the screen. So do promises trigger events? Because I always thought of them more as bookmarks where, you know, it's like, I need this information and I, I know I need to get it asynchronously. So, you know, I make the request and then when I come back around to needing it, then I cash in my IOU or I go look in the bookmark and the information's there now. Yeah, I think that's a good way to explain it, the bookmark analogy there. I haven't used that before, but that's that works. Uh, it's not an event. You can call an event in a promise, and I've seen that before as well, mm-hmm. but it's not the same as an event. It's uh, It's a way to avoid... Not to avoid. It's a way to deal with the asynchronous nature of the browser because it's not connected to the back end directly, right? Right. Well, actually, it's a way to deal with any asynchronous thing. So you could be waiting for the user to click on some kind of a mod, uh, you know, modal box. Anything, actually, anything event-driven at all is uh, an opportunity to represent that as a promise. A set timeout can be represented as a promise. It just happens to be, happens in native JavaScript that there are all these different ways to yes. deal with with events, which, by the way, is what you're also dealing with when you're waiting for the server to respond. You're waiting for an event. So an analogy, if I could make one here, that has worked well for me is a promise is like when you go out to dinner and you go to, let's say we're going to Chili's, and go to the front desk and say, party for four, and the hostess gives you that essentially like a pager that you take with you. And so now you have a token that, or a physical thing that represents something that's going to happen in the future. And then when the table is ready, the beeper goes off, and then you basically take that and exchange it for a table, for four, for instance, and that is, in my opinion, how promises actually work. Because you make a call, so you're doing some asynchronous action, and you receive essentially this object that will be resolved in the future. Now, once it's resolved, essentially the code beeper goes off, and it is then translated into your request or resolves into the actual value whatever Right. So then how do promises play into Angular? How do I get my nice little Angular beeper? So promises are in part baked into some of the underlying services that come with Angular. So the validation service, uh, for instance, for ng-animate has promises baked into them. But you can also roll your own promises using the queue service. Yeah, there's actually an object called a dollar queue, a service. It's a service like any other service, but it's a service that's capable of producing Angular promises and um, and and managing them. Doesn't that actually wrap around the queue library? It doesn't. It uh, and at one point I was really disappointed about that because QJS, um, the library, uh, it was is it was and is a great promise library, very rich. But uh, it's also quite big, and they uh, and the Angular team also wanted to put something into it that is not in QJS, which is the ability to uh, mock mock it and test it. So they devised their own promise service called a dollar Q in I think homage to QJS, and stripped it down bare bones. It's since gotten a little sugar on it, 
Uh, and therefore, they have their own promise library that is very much modeled on the fundamentals of QJS. Ward, I am really amazed. It only took you five minutes to turn this into a testing discussion. <laughs> <laughs> hey. But it, uh, it is a fair and great point, right? So when I started getting into Angular, I was aware of Q as well, and, and so was Ward. And that was one of the things we started looking at was like, okay, Q is pretty awesome. Q is a great promise library. And it was at the time, it was definitely the best. And now it may be debatable if it is or isn't. But it allows you to do a lot of things to write promises because native JavaScript didn't have anything like that at the time. So with Q, you can do things like set up a promise. You can reject the promise. You can resolve it. And reject and resolve are just fancy words for this promise came back and I liked the answer or I didn't like the answer. So it, let's, for example, use that HTTP analogy again. If I go off and use a promise to get some data, if something happened on the server, that will then be uh, caught in a catch. And then you could then reject that promise to say, yeah, I got an answer, but it's not what you wanted and you won't be happy about it. Or So you mean like a 404 or 500 or something that isn't useful? Right. Something that's not going to, it's not what you expected. You didn't get mm -hmm. back your list of customers. You got back, you know, a big pile of poo. So that's when you'd, you'd reject that. And resolving it is, you got what you wanted. Here you go. And I resolve that uh, and kind of continue on your merry way. So reject and resolve are the canonical methods that usually hang off a promise when you deal with those. And one of the reasons a lot of Angular developers may have never heard these words is that $HTTP is probably the most oft used service in Angular that uses promises that people may not necessarily know that it's using promises. So when I say $HTTP.get, and I hate writing pseudocode on a podcast, but $HTTP.get, and then put my URL in there, that's a function that's going to go off and run away and do something asynchronously. And then if I chain a dot .then and a dot .catch after that, the dot .then is, hey, everything worked, I can then operate on it. And the dot .catch is something went bad, and I can operate on it. So, so, so that's do you mind if I back up on that a little bit, John? It, uh, but, uh, you know, your in your verbal programming, because I want to do some verbal programming too. Um, when you take that dollar HTTP and you call get on it, um, what you're getting back is a promise object. You get that back immediately, and it's in an unfulfilled state. So promises are either fulfilled or unfulfilled, and that's just like when you handed that beeper, right? That uh, Lucas was talking about. All right, it hasn't rung yet. So that's what you're holding in your hand immediately, and, the, and then your code continues to execute. And that's an important thing to bring across is that your code, right after you make that LRHTTP get call, continues to operate. And, all right. So now you've got that promise object, and then you can chain onto it things that you want to have happen when that promise is fulfilled. And the then and the catch and the finally are the methods by which you chain onto a promise what it is that you want to do when the promise is fulfilled. Does that help at all? It's also worth mentioning real quick, um, it doesn't get used a lot, but also uh, you can attach essentially like a notify callback if you're doing, for instance, like an asynchronous operation that's long running. Yes. So you can actually track the progress. So like, for instance, um, I used it when I'm uploading stuff, for instance, to like S3 or whatever, but then you can also say, this is partially resolved, or here's the status of this. So this is good for like you know, kind of like loading animation or any feedback to the user. Yeah, and that's a great point, Lucas, because we use dot notify quite a bit for promises that we want to have some kind of progress notified about. So let me say it another way. For example, if I'm doing a progress bar and I have some sense of, you know, 
this thing's going to take a little while and I want to be notified along the way so I can change that progress bar and it's running a promise. The only way I can really do that effectively is through the notify that you can change, dot notify. But I probably wouldn't use that in a case where I have a promise and I really don't, there's nothing for it to notify about. Like it has no idea what's actually happening. So the notify is great for like progress bars and stuff, but it's, it's not yep. used a whole lot. Uh, it's not used as often as, uh, you know, the then and the catch, I would say. So can I uh, clarify something here really, really quickly? If you make an assignment on like the $HTTP GET and then you do a dot .then on the response, uh, let's say that you get some JSON back, are you saying that you can actually massage the data there and then assign that yes. back to something? Yes, and that's, that's one big reason I like the dot .then better than doing the there's – a, there's a helper function that comes with Angular's HTTP called success. That's uh-huh. one of the reasons I like the dot .then. The dot .then gives you the opportunity to be, first of all, more in line with what the promise libraries offer for an API, the dot .then. And it also allows you to have the opportunity to say, I got a response back. I can strip off the headers, the data, the status. I can get whatever I want out of there. And it's really useful for, have you ever had a data set, Charles, that you've hit it back in, and for some reason it's stored in some structure that's like, you know, my data dot, today's data dot, customer dot, first customer uh-huh. dot. Yep. And all you wanted was the thing that's like the fourth or fifth dot. <clears throat> yep. This the then allows you to then say, you know what, strip all that beginning crap off and let's just return the thing I actually want. Right. So actually, to be, to be precise, it returns a new promise that would return the thing that you actually want. Yes. So if promises are almost short-circuited, right? They're, they're not short-circuited, but you do a promise and then you return another promise. This promise yes, is all right. the way there, down. Any individual promise is immutable. But all these then and catch and finally, all the methods that hang off of it, which themselves return, they all return a new promise that's based on the previous promise. Right. And that's how you get the chaining is because all these promises have the same behavior, yes. essentially. You're not, and that's a good, great point where you're not having one long promise. If you keep chaining dot thens, you're actually creating new promises and resolving them as you go. So one other thing that I'm seeing here, if you call dot catch then because catch handles some kind of error state or something, if you make an assignment then, you know, for the result, then you might get the error result or the result that you expected. So then do you have to handle that further down in your code, or is there a clean way to handle that as part of the promise? Yeah. I mean, in the catch, you, you generally want to handle something bad happened, right? Mm-hmm. So generally, something you'll do in, in perhaps a service or factory in Angular will be, first, you might want to log that thing. Uh, whatever right. codes they might have. And then you might want to set some state. If you, I mean, not always, but sometimes you want to say, I was expecting this or that, but I want to set some state. But then probably the most important thing is something Ward has uh, kicked me a couple times for forgetting to do. And Ward, what's the most important thing you should do inside of a catch of a promise? Make sure you return a new promise. And that's either a promise that usually, since you now know what you want to do, it's a promise that is auto is already fulfilled. That is to say, that is ready to be chained to and actively used. And that out of an exception one, out of the catch one, it's typical that you would return a rejected promise that has the reason in it so that the next consumer in the chain can behave as it wants to behave. So let's talk about why, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say you're in a controller and you're, the controller is a customer controller and he's calling some service saying, an Angular service saying, go get me my customers. Something went bad. In your catch of that service, let's say you didn't do what Ward just said. You did not, inside the catch, return a rejected promise or any kind of a promise. Inside the controller in the customer, where it's waiting for that answer, 
it's not actually going to do what you think it's going to do. Because now the catch didn't return back that promise, so it really doesn't have a good way of knowing that that thing failed. As a matter of fact, it's worse than that. It will, if it trained to then on it, it will now think that it succeeded. Because in a catch, you can actually put it back. There's kind of like out of a promise, there's a happy path and a sad path. The happy path is the then success path, and the sad path is the catch, ooh, bad exception error. But you can theoretically uh, return out of that a new promise that is back on a happy path again. Maybe you were able to fix whatever was wrong. And when, by returning nothing, you implicitly cause the promise library to return essentially a fulfilled success promise that has no body in it, has no data in it. And so downstream, if you had like your view model, you had some controller was waiting for your service to respond from the, um, the server with data. And if you, if it went through the catch phase, but you didn't return a rejected promise, it's going to, the, the outer, uh, calling controller is going to think that your call to the server succeeded and returned an empty data object. Not what you had in mind. So what you do in that function then is you, create a promise, you reject the promise, and then you return the rejected promise. Exactly, yes which you no. can do in one step. Yeah, that's, that's the point, right. So most people to do when you say that is they say they'll create the deferred, they'll use q.defer, create it, they'll do something with it and return it. But Ward pointed out to me, um, he's, he's Mr. Promise, there's a little method that you can do in there, dollar sign q.reject, and that oh, will okay. actually reject it right away for you. So you don't actually have to set up the deferred and do all the work. It's a shortcut method on dollar sign Q that actually makes it just a one-liner. And the thing I always forget is I forget to return that. So I'll yeah. actually, I'll dollar sign Q dot reject, but I'll forget to say return dollar sign Q dot reject. Right. So let's suppose you wanted to have a catch way down there in the data service, and all it did was log that there was a problem, and then it said, but I don't know what to do about it, so I'm just going to pass the error along to the next guy who called me. So then your function would be very simple. Your cat, uh, you would have your catch, your dollar catch, and inside that we would put your handler, which is a function that takes the reason. And in there, we go, let me log the reason, and then I'm going to turn right around and forward this on. So I return $Q dot reject paren reason paren, and I'm out. So it's a two-liner. And that mm-hmm. just, all that, all I really did there was sort of pipeline in the ability to locally log the reason that came back from the server, and then Without doing any more massaging, I just pass that along to the caller so the caller can do something with it. That's the simplest kind of sort of pipeline pass-through of a catch that you can do. It would be probably more useful if the data service actually took that reason, parsed it, made, tried to make some sense out of it, and then gave back to the view model something that boiled down the, you know, because there are like 50 possible ways that things can go wrong. It might boil that down into something that the controller could reasonably understand. So that, that gets to an interesting topic, right? Let's say you're in that controller sample again, and you're asking for data from a service, and the service has a promise to go get it, and let's say it fails. You do want to log that information there, probably the raw information logged there, so it has some idea of what went wrong. But that's not the information you want to show to the user, and nor would you want to show some kind of a dialogue to the user in a service. So you bubble something back through rejecting the promise in the service to the controller. And then, Ward, at that point, you're in the controller, and you've got a catch statement. What do you do then there? What do you recommend to do to show the user, hey, this, this something bad happened? 
Well, one one hopes that now that what you've got is a is a nice a, a reason that you can actually uh, uh, execute on uh, as a controller. In other words, it's something that all of the muddy details of talking to the back end have been stripped away, and now you've got something that you can make a decision on. And it would be something that you had negotiated as part of your API with a data service that it would send you back a reason that you could do something with. What could you do with that? Now you really have to think, what is my user experience supposed to be here? What am I supposed to tell the user? And what am I, how am I supposed to make the view change? It could be that you would throw the, um, a reason into a toast that would pop up and let the user know. But hopefully you would then also say, and here's what you can do about it. In other words, it would be an opportunity for the controller to communicate in some way to the user that would explain it in user terms, not programmer yeah. terms. Well, and let, give me, them let me interject for a sec, War, because something I think is important, too, and I agree with what you're saying, is also what don't you do in the controller in that catch? And I, and I firmly believe most cases you should not be logging in the service and in the controller, and because I see this a lot. Yep. Every time a promise bubbles through a service to a service to a controller, <laughs> I end up looking in the log. I see the same darn message in three places. That's demoware. Yeah, I mean, log it the first place, right? Log where it happened. And at that point, after that, it's really a UI decision, right? Yep. It's what do you, how do you want to get this information to the user? Do you want, or do you want to just basically just pretend it never happened and don't show the user anything? Which yeah, is, I guess, choice. another that's option. But so, it's, the user's not the person to say 404 to. Right. No, Can I clarify no. something here real quick, though? Because I haven't really played with these promises, and I've always just done the success-fail functions in my Angular. So I'm I'm really interested in this. So if if I have a catch and it, you know, say it 404, and so I log out to the console, hey, it 404, and then I pass it along, then it'll trigger the other catch on the HTTP in my controller. Or well, presumably, it wouldn't be uh, your controller isn't. I, I don't know. Are you, did your controller actually did your controller actually call dollar HTTP? Uh, some of my older code does. If I have a service though, the service will handle that. Right, right. right. So you would have said service dot get me dinner. Mm-hmm. All right, and it would have gone off, and it would have come back and said, "I can't get you dinner." Now I'm hungry. Now I'm hungry. Four oh four. No dinner. No no dinner found. Dinner not found. And, right. Right. Dinner not 302, found. Three oh two. Redirect. Well, <laughs> you don't have the right to have dinner. Anyway, whatever it is. Yeah, all right. The service would hand you back something that would, you know, that would be ready for you to interpret. Now, inside the controller in your catch, you have to say, how am I going to tell the user that they can't have dinner? Okay, so the service just sends out a, or returns a message, so it's not a... It returns a reason object, a reason object. It's right. an object. Could be a string, but it returns it, and that's what the ca- your catch, your controller catch function is going to receive that reason object. Okay. And now, and now it's the controller's job to turn that reason object into something that would make sense to a user. All right. So I'm not passing the uh, rejected promise out to the controller. The service did return a promise, a rejected promise, with a yeah. reason. Mm-hmm. And then your catch, which you wrote inside, your, your controller would have said, service.getmedinner.then blah, blah, blah. Now we're into the catch. Dot catch, and then you would have a little function that you put in there that was say, let's say it was called uh, get dinner failed. Okay. Now you write a method called get dinner failed, which right. takes it as a reason object, and that's what you go to down, town on inside okay. your. Okay. Yeah. So that method in the controller, Charles, and I always call like you know whatever it's called get the name of the method dot failed or name of the method dot succeeded. So 
the name of the method dot fail to get dinner failed actually has a parameter passed to it, which is basically whatever the value was that you passed the reject. So very specifically in the service, when you have the catch, you'll say return dollar sign q dot reject. Then in parentheses, you'd pass some kind of a reason, maybe a string, an mm-hmm. object, wherever you want. That's that thing that you pass and that reject is actually the parameter that goes into the function in the catch statement in your controller. Gotcha. And then okay. you can decide, what do I do with this? Display to the user, show a blink tag, you know, dancing Lucas is on the screen, whatever you like. Bow, bow, bow. <laughs> you, know, you know, all I can think of right now, Lucas, is you dancing with that uh, the tearaway pants that you did on uh, oh, man. NGConf. <laughs> Mortalized. Ooh, I'm we so need a, sorry I missed that. We need a link to that video. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to find it now. The pants weren't leather ward. Sorry to oh. disappoint. Darn. I'm really digging this. Now i got to go re- rewrite some code. Right. So it's always you're always passing along a promise. Always passing along, passing it down the what chain. What about then? Does then return a promise or does it just Absolutely. return the results? Then always returns a promise. Okay. Every All of those methods return promises. That's really key. Okay. All right? It's just when those things are fulfilled, when those promises are fulfilled, either successfully or not successfully, that matters, that, that then kicks off the call to some function inside. And only when that long chain of things, you know, for a particular chain of promises, does, when that's finished, uh, does it end, it does it stop passing along. Now, one of the cool things, though, is remember we said that the promise is immutable. So once a promise has been fulfilled, once you had it, all right, if it was in its success state, it's successful. If it was in its failed state, it was, it was failed. But it's going to stay that way. And that means, for example, let's suppose I had a red asynchronous ready method. I have to, you know, my application has to start up. This data service has to go do some stuff and asynchronous stuff. And it's going to return a promise when it's ready. So that might be a scenario where, like, you go out and you get a bunch of data, for example, maybe seven different calls, and you want to go get data that are going to fill drop-down boxes. And it's not ready until that's all done. So you have, like, six controllers that are all asking this data service, are you ready? You don't know which one of those controllers is going to the data service is going to is going to call the data service first. It's real simple. They all say they all call data service. Are you ready or you know ready? Right. What happens is they all get the same promise back. All right. Because inside the service, the first time it's called, you realize that you don't you know you haven't initiated it. You don't know who's calling you, but you know, hey, all right, this is my first time. I'm inside the service. Let's get ready. So it starts the asynchronous processes of getting. Uh, whatever data, whatever ready means, getting the data. And then it has a promise. But subsequent controllers who ask for ready get that same promise back. The same one as the, as was returned to the first guy who started this whole thing, right? So all six controllers are all waiting on, sitting on the same promise. When that promise resolves, it's resolved once and it's resolved forever, meaning that the service was ready. And every controller now or an hour from now that asks for ready, will get that same fulfilled promise, and therefore it won't wait. Every controller from now to forever calls ready, will have an instantly ready promise in its hands, and will be able to continue. Now, is this automatic, or is this how you should write it? That's how promises work, and okay. and we I use that ready uh, strategy a lot. Yeah, because you can write your own promises, right? So you get some for free, which is the cool thing about Angular. Anytime you do $HTTP, you're getting a promise for free, which is why many of us, uh, you know, when we first start with it, we don't really think about it. There's a pitfall that is very easy to walk into that I want to make very clear of, too. Let's say 
I've written this code, so I'm not throwing anybody else on the bus but me. But let's say in the controller, you write this line of code. I've got a variable called customer. Maybe it's customer name, and I need to go get that. So in my controller, I've got scope.customer or, you know, vm.customer if you do controller as. I could say vm.customer equals $.http.get and then go call my URL. Now, that line of code seems innocuous, right? Because you're saying, oh, it's very innocent. I just went off and called my URL, and my URL is going to return the customer, and I'll just set the return value of this HTTP get right to my customer. Looks like it's going to work. And in Angular, I believe Angular 1.1, up until that point, that actually did work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the problem is, that's actually now, and correctly so, returning a promise. So now, what you've actually done is you've gone off, gotten the data, and then returned the customer. The customer goes into Ether because you didn't do anything with it, but instead you actually set the promise to the thing that you're binding on the screen. So have you ever done that work? Because I, I know I did it earlier. Well, back in 1.1, <laughs> uh, the binding library understood uh, that you could either be binding to an, a, a customer or to a promise that returned a customer. And it would be able to tell the difference. And if you returned a promise that would return a customer, then it would uh, go down a different code path and attach itself to the then and wait. And then when the customer arrived, it would then bind to the customer. So that was ki- it was kind of a nifty little sugar feature. So that you could, the developer couldn't, didn't have to understand promises. That dealt great. That was great for the success case, but it wasn't too good if um, the call to the server failed. Right. And so they stopped. They took that out somewhere along the line. I don't know whether it was 1.2 or somewhere along the line, and they stopped with the ability to bind to promise. And, and it's had, actually it's, a good thing because if you started I, Angular after that, you probably never knew about this, which is great. So. Yep. You you can not listen to the last one minute of this show if you haven't if you just got into Angular. <laughs> but, but it's interesting because you know what things like Firebase and stuff like that and a lot of uh, data libraries try you know they they assume that a developer really can't handle asynchrony and so they try and do that and um, some variation of that. So for example, you might have a controller that hands to one of these, you, you know, it says go get customer. And you handed an object that the data library is supposed to populate when it comes back from the asynchronous call. So th- there, are, there are various things that try and follow that model of where you actually returns. You give it some kind of container for the asynchronous thing to ultimately put something in, and that and that's how it flows back. And then the developer doesn't have to, you know, can delay that awful day when they have to learn about asynchronous programming. However, so, that day will arrive. The day will arrive when you must face the music and realize that you're programming asynchronously. So I'm going to make a, a completely one statement. I'm going to flip completely around. And that's, I believe firmly that promises are not that difficult in the situations you just talked about. Meaning any developer can pick these things up and after, you know, an hour or two of playing with them, really grok how the promise works throughout Angular. Now here's where I flip. The place it gets more confusing, in, in my mind, is when you have a situation where, and I'm not saying this is the right situation, but let's just say you have the situation where you need to go get some data, wait for it to come back, and then after you get that data, you need to make two simultaneous calls to go get other data at the same time. You don't want them to chain right after each other. You want to do both in uh, parallel. And then when both of those return, then perform some action. Mm-hmm. That is where I think people get thrown off sometimes, is that I have to make a couple of trips it may not, maybe HTTP, but maybe it's also just, you know, animations done, then do this, and then do that as well. Um, but how do you run 
steps in parallel versus in series in promises, I think is a place that people get tripped up pretty easily. Don't you think, Ward? Yeah, I think that's the next level. That's the next level of understanding of promises is how to chain them sequentially and in parallel, which, you, can, as you know, John, is actually easy to do once you learn the pattern. But it's something, it's the next step in the learning process. I think it is, but I don't think it's, um, what I'm trying to get across, I guess, is, and maybe I'm doing it very well, is I don't think it's an advanced scenario, meaning I have never written an app of more than a demo that hasn't had some case where I had to chain more than one promise together. And that's where I think people can sometimes get tripped up. And what I see sometimes is they'll do the then, and then inside of the then, they'll start using callbacks. Yeah. So they'll like mix callbacks with a promise. And while that functionally works, it's, it's kind of mixing apples and oranges. Yeah. And it's unpleasant. And, and it's per, and it's so, it is so simple to do a sequential chain and parallel chains of promises. Once you know the pattern, it's really so simple that it's worth learning. So I think if I give anybody any tips, the, the thing I would do is when you write promises, one of my favorite things to do is, let's say I have a function called go get my customer data. In that, in that function, I would say return, and then if I was using HTTP, it's a dollar sign HTTP dot get my URL, and then I would do a dot then, and if I had another then, I'd do another dot then, and then a dot catch, and then the things that are inside those thens and the catches, they'd actually be a function name, a delegate, if you will. I don't actually embed the functions. In, I know you can. You can embed anonymous functions inside of those thens and catches, but I don't do it. And it's for two very simple reasons. One, if it's not a named function, which you could have embedded if you really wanted to, it's hard to debug stack traces. And then two, once you start embedding functions inside of those thens and catches, you end up with the same problem you have with callbacks in my mind, or this pyramid of doom of how do you read that logic? So it's really hard to read that code, whereas if all my code says is get my cust return HTTP dot URL, go get my customers, dot then call this, dot then call that, dot catch, I'm done. It becomes much simpler to read that kind of code. Totally agree. I am extremely leery of putting lambdas or f anonymous functions in the then or catch parameter. I, I really like the idea of having named functions because it just makes it, as you say, John, easy to read and easy to debug. So pro tip there. One thing that I'm wondering about, we mentioned HTTP. We keep mentioning HTTP, and we've also mentioned user input. Are there other good places where we should be using promises? Well, uh, animations is often a place where you, you'll use it. I think it's built into the animation library to, to wait on an animation to finish. Any place where you thought you would want to do a timeout. Any place where you want to do a and throw up an alert box. I mean, I don't mean literally the JavaScript alert, but where you want to do them. The mo you're chaining things together, and you want to ask in the sequence of things whether um, whether somebody is uh, you know you ask the user is this okay or not. Is it good? place to wrap that in a promise because it because that's an asynchronous thing too if you think about it right so yeah and i think uh when you're using those two definitely check into the dot all because yeah. that's a pretty powerful method right in itself so you can say uh dollar sign q dot all if you want to make your own promise because sometimes you might want to call three things in parallel yep. and then when all of them are done because you don't know which one's going to finish first when all of them are done the all will actually call the then and then on the flip side, is if you already have a piece of data that you just want to resolve, then you can use uh, that one. So if you don't know. It's as if I'm 
call and check in. I'm like, oh, I already have this. Yeah, that's a great point, Lucas, because if you, otherwise you're setting up a deferred again and trying to resolve it, blah, blah, blah. But if you just want to resolve and pass some data back in a promise, uh, $q.when, you just pass it the data you want, it works great. That's particularly helpful. Let's suppose you have a um, a, a service you uh, API, and the service, you know, from the like from the controller's point of view, it's like go get customer. But behind the scenes in your data service, maybe you're caching that customer, right? You're sticking it, stowing it away somewhere. So the first time through, you look and say, do I have this customer in cache? No, I don't. Well, that's going to be an asynchronous call to the server, and then you're gonna, you know, you're gonna return the value back. But what if you do have it in cache? You don't, you know, you're not going to call the server. And yet the call, the calling structure, the controller that called the service called it in an asynchronous manner, expecting a promise back. That's the perfect opportunity to fish that customer out of the cache and return dollar Q dot when that customer is the object. And now you have a synchronous behavior within the data service, but from the controller's perspective, they never had to know. They just had a completely asynchronous promise-based interaction with the data service. I think one final thing we might want to bring to mind is some people who've looked at the dot then may have noticed that it has, it actually takes more than one function parameter. It'll take at least two. The first one being the callback if the promise succeeds and the second one being the callback if it fails. But you'll notice that we have always been saying use dot then for the success path and then chain on a dot catch for the fail path. And we do that for a reason. And it also has a third parameter, doesn't it? The it's notify. the notify. It's the notify yeah. one if the behind the scenes, if the thing you're talking to actually supports that kind of progress notification. And I'll tell you right now, when I see the multiple parameter then, I, I don't like it. And maybe this is just a personal preference thing. I just don't like it. I've been bitten by it, and plus, on top of that, and I, I think you can explain why you can get bit by it, but on top of that, it's hard to read. Which parameter is what? Yeah, it is. It is. So, you know, I, I'm with you, John. I'm just from a readability perspective. I prefer being explicit about which path I'm trying to solve with a single function parameter passed in. However, there's actually a structural reason as well. Let's suppose I wanted to try to use the two-parameter-then call. Where the first one so, is a success handler, second one is a fail handler. If the success handler that I've written itself has an exception, what's going to happen? Where's that going to go? It's not going to go to the fail handler because they're at the same level. So it's if I have thrown an exception in there, bad things can happen, and I can't. I won't necessarily be able to deal with it unless I have a downstream catch. So it is often the case that we write our catch logic to cap, to deal with anything that could go wrong, whether it's the failure, you know, of the remote server to give me with the data I wanted back, or I made some colossal mistake inside my success handler. And the way to be sure that your your fail path, your catch path, can deal with both ways in which the request can go wrong, you want to have the failure path handled separately in a separate dot catch. Gotcha. Yeah. And that, that's a good point because if you do a then and you do more logic and that thing causes an error, you want to make sure that that is handled properly. Uh, so it's just, it's really saving yourself. The reason, so why don't people hit these things, right? Is I run into developers all the time and my job is dealing with this kind of code and I have hundreds of developers I work with, literally. And why don't they hit these problems early? I'll tell you why. 
Because we test inherently by nature, I'll go back to the testing word, is we test the happy path. When everything works, you can pretty much code success, then, you know, put the three parameter then on it, whatever you want to do. It all is great. But if you don't test the failure cases, you're missing out because there may be hidden bugs in your code. And I think that's the, the takeaway I take out of this is make sure you're, you're paying attention to these tips because if you have an error and you're not testing the catch case of uh, promise, uh, you want to make sure that that bubbles back the way you think it's going to bubble. So yeah, if you don't, uh, if you don't put the catch perfect. in there and something goes wrong, you're st- sitting at a screen and wondering what the heck happened because nothing throws, nothing goes wrong, you see nothing, but the data didn't show and you don't know why. So you just got to put the catch in there, and then, as John says, you want to make sure that in your test practice, whatever your test practice is, you look both at the happy path and at the at the uh, unhappy path, the sad path. The sad path. The sad path. Does that help, Charles? I mean, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to digging into some of this some more. So, because I mean, it sounds simple, right? But there's all these little nuanced oh, of course. aspects and. I think the reason Ward and I have uh, have grokked it more lately is because we've hit just probably every bad way you could do a promise. So <laughs> I, I, I trust the two of you to find every bad way to do something. So <laughs> that's right. We can't seem to find the good way, but we have no trouble finding the bad way. <laughs> you know, I had a great conversation with Dan Wallene on Sunday, and, and Ward, we were, we were skyping back and forth each other, doing some code, which is, was really fun code, System JS and Angular, and it was funny because at one point Dan said to me, "You know." And maybe I'm training confidence here, but I hope he, hope he gets the joke. He said, you know, if anybody saw all the silly things that we were just trying, <laughs> they would laugh at us and be like, oh my gosh, these guys know what they're doing. And it's so true because in Ward and I specifically in this case, we have literally tried and failed at many different ways of doing things. And, you know, you come out the other end learning from that. I've often said it's really valuable to fail because if you don't fail at something, you're not going to know the right way to do it. Yep. So it's uh, it's a learning experience, and doing promises, you're not going to get it right the first time. You know, you got to try it and give it a go. Absolutely. So I'm going to throw a bomb in here just as the show ends. No, throw a grenade. There's this new thing coming down the pipe. You may have heard that promises are passe, and in Angular two, some of the time you're going to hear about this because they're going to say, "No, observables are the way to go." All right. And I think we should do a little show on observables because there's a point that they're making about how observables are kind of a superset and a stronger way to approach things asynchrony than promises. We're clearly out of time to do it, but I just want to register that. And by the way, I love my promises and they aren't going anywhere. But the observables thing is the next step in the road towards talking about how to handle asynchronous stuff. And we should talk about that sometime. Yeah, we should. We'll put it on the list. We should also talk about how the await keyword has helped out some other languages with promises. Ah, true enough. All right, well, uh, let's go ahead and do some picks. Ward, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. I am reading the book, The Science of Interstellar, the movie. Did you all guys, you guys all see Interstellar? Nope. Yep, I saw it. Fantastic I science I was get movie. Up. It's just a must-see. It's a mind-blowing thing to look at. Anyway, what, what you may not know is that that was based on um, the work by uh, Kip Thorne, who's a Feynman professor of theoretical physics at uh, Cal, um, Caltech. And it's uh, driven entirely by... Um, it's a science-based movie in the sense that everything that happens in there, no matter how bizarre, is either really true from a physics perspective 
or you could get a bunch of drunk physicists in the room and they would talk about it as if it might be true. Uh, <laughs> I like that second <laughs> definition. <laughs> all right, so so you know, I mean, it's not, you know, the Earth can never be flat, all right, because that's just not true. But wormholes, uh, you know, uh, watching, uh, you know, seven, you know, one hour of time at a planet close to a black hole, it turns into seven years back on Earth. Uh, maybe that could work. So anyway, the book. The Science of Interstellar, written by Kip Thorne, is all about the science behind the movie. It's beautifully illustrated. It's written in plain English. There's lots of it that I still don't understand, but I haven't been able to understand quantum gravity anyway. Uh, but I have a, a fun time smacking my head against it, and maybe you will too. So go get the book. Awesome. So that was really deep, Ward, and I hate following up Ward's picks because mine's not nearly as deep. I also saw a movie that probably wasn't on the same scale as Interstellar, it was Ant-Man, and I loved it. I, I had very low expectations going in, to be honest, and I love Marvel, but uh, I really loved it. It was a lot of fun and uh, a lot of good jokes in there. There was uh, you know, a good plot, uh, a lot of good side characters. Um, I think they played it out really well, and of course, in classic Marvel fashion, they had not one, but this time they had two extra scenes in the credits at the end. So my kids loved it of all ages, from 6 to 16, so... We had a good time. I definitely recommend uh, checking out Ant-Man for a good, fun movie to watch. I have to admit, I have been highly skeptical, and that's why I haven't seen it, so I'll have to go check it out. Yeah, I, you know, I saw it because it was one of those the kids wanted to see, but it wasn't like I was looking forward to it like I was Avengers and, right. and Captain America, but I really enjoyed it. It's different, but it's still a lot of fun. Cool. Lucas, do you have some picks for us? So my pick of the week is the You Don't Know JS series by Kyle Simpson. I actually just finished the Scopes and Closure book uh, the other day. It's about 60 pages, very detailed, really good write-up around JavaScript and some of the internal workings of JavaScript. And so being an Angular developer, it's very easy to just use the Angular mechanisms and have some of the underlying details of JavaScript obscured. This is a really good tour into kind of some of the underpinnings that framework developers don't really think about. So highly recommended. Kyle is a very good author. I love all of his books. All right. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. As many of you may or may not know, I have a video series about how to do Ruby on Rails called Rails Clips. Uh, it was supported by a Kickstarter campaign. And one of the levels was that I would do people a favor, a small favor, like mentioning them on a show. So, one of our listeners, Daniel Egger, I'm sure that that's not how you say it because he's from Switzerland. Uh, he has an AngularJS course that he teaches at in Switzerland. So, if you are in Europe and you want an Angular course, then go check it out. I'm not going to try and read the domain because it's something something.ch slash AngularJS Kurs or however you say it in German or whatever. So, anyway, but yeah, so I really appreciate him back in the the campaign, and I'm sure it's a terrific course. So so go check it out. And the other thing that I'm going to mention here is Angular Remote Conf. So far, we have four uh, speakers that have committed to speak. Um, Brad Green's going to talk. Uh, Lucas is going to talk. Kent Dodds, who was on the show, is also going to talk. And uh, we got Jaffer Hussein, who's also going to talk. So we're working on lining that up. If you want to speak, we are opening up a call for proposals. And the tickets are not expensive. So go check them out. I think I'm going to do half price on an early bird if you pick them up before August 25th. So that's a $100 ticket. 
uh, before August 25th. And then um, the conference is going to be September 24th through 26th. So yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. Should be a lot of fun. And I look forward to seeing you all there. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you all next week. So take care and we'll see you all then. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 